You hate health insurance. And let's be frank, it's a miracle you've even downloaded this podcast. But you'll be so glad you did. How in the Health Insurance is designed to make coverage and care open and transparent to take the fear out of keeping you and your family safe. We might even save you some money along the way. This podcast is hosted by Matt Allen of Iconic Insurance, and you can learn more at iconic-insurance.com. Hello, and welcome to the show. Today, we will discuss a topic that affects us all, our healthcare system. We are going to cover how and why the cost has risen, why care in some cases is worse, and what affects providers, insurance, but most importantly, the patients. But there is hope. And that is why I wanted to bring on my guest today, Dr. Mercy Hilton. I've got the insurance side handled, and now we get to hear about it from the provider side. So welcome. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Um, I've known Dr. Hilton for maybe only a couple weeks, but we had a conversation about two weeks ago that absolutely floored me. And she has a piece out right now in the Indie Star. It's an op-ed. And it's titled, Bloated Healthcare Prices Will Increase with Industry in Charge of Cost Reductions. And what was it that led you to writing this article? Well, my primary goal was to tell legislators that if they didn't put some sort of um, guidelines out for the health systems and how they reduce costs, that ultimately... Uh, the health systems would uh, choose to maintain their profits and decrease their own costs by reducing labor costs, which would in turn harm healthcare workers that are already um, overwhelmed and stretched to the maximum, and uh, thus uh, secondarily patients. Uh, by um, cutting corners on staffing, patients would get poorer quality care. So that was the reason why I wrote the article in the first place. Because there's there's also a legislative session that's sort of been going on in Indiana specifically uh, that was driven to lower the health care costs. Because I think you had mentioned in the article, Indiana out of the entire nation has, I think it was the fifth highest health care cost. Depending on the study, it's either the third highest in the nation or the fifth highest in the nation. So we're, we're very high up in the... Um, healthcare or hospital costs. So the legislative session that just ended um, actually was not specific to this topic, but um, legislative leaders had in the fall of 2021 called the heads of the large hospital um, groups in the state and the large insurers in the state um, and some other stakeholders like the uh, medical profession and nursing profession and other people, other stakeholders in this issue that called them to the table and said, hey, guys, our costs here in Indiana are ridiculous. Small businesses that need to provide health insurance for their employees are struggling under the weight of these enormous insurance premiums that they have to pay. We're losing um, businesses that might otherwise come to Indiana because of these outrageous costs here in Indiana. So you have to do something about it. And uh, these legislative leaders basically told the health systems, 
you know, the best solution will come from you guys. So you have until April of 2022 to come up with a plan. Um, and that's where it was kind of left. So, you know, in anticipation of that, um, of what, what their plan is going to be to, to decrease, uh, hospital costs, thereby, you know, decreasing insurance premiums eventually. Um, that's why I wrote this article, because I think that if you allow the people that created the problem in the first place <laughs> and who have a motivation for uh, keeping up their, you know, high revenues, that they're going to find ways to cut corners that will that will harm patients and um, healthcare workers. So they might end up with a lower overall cost, but you're saying the way that they get there, it's probably not going to be the most effective way as far as maintaining a certain level of care across the board. To decrease their prices, the prices that, you know, a hospitalization, um, in Indiana, you know, is charged for an insurance company. So say, for example, a hospitalization is $50,000 and uh, or for ease, let's just say $100,000. And of that $100,000, if um, $20,000 is profit that the hospital ends up keeping, they want to keep as much of that $20,000 in profit as possible. So in order to lower the price to, say, $80,000 total, they may say, okay, well, we're going to decrease our own costs. And so if they were paying $30,000 a year in labor costs for the physicians and the nurses uh, for that type of hospitalization, they may say, okay, well, we're going to reduce our staffing. We're going to um, make sure that in the ICU, instead of one nurse for every two patients, we'll have one nurse for every three patients. So they have to Mm -hmm. hire less nurses. Um, Or that instead of having um, one ICU doctor, um, you know, for 10 patients or 15 patients, they're going to have... Um, one ICU doctor for 30 patients and have a nurse practitioner um, be the other provider to care for the the rest of those patients. So um, so that's what I mean by cutting labor Hmm. costs or cutting corners. Um, So if they can reduce their labor costs from 30,000 to 10,000, They've saved the twenty thousand that they need to reduce their prices, where they're still maintaining their their profits. That's exactly right. That is sorry, that's long winded way. No, of saying. The, but but you broke it down into a digestible way because I I think for a lot of people they luckily haven't had to use the health insurance system and the healthcare system on a hundred thousand dollar hospital stay, and so when and if those things were to happen to them or some loved ones, they may be shocked at the prices. And so the legislative, you know, this is all sort of tied together with one of the main issues that you brought up when I kind of wanted to go way back to the start, like what, what even happened? Why are we even here? And you had mentioned, and it, and it makes sense. The idea that 
when you get a third party involved with handling the billing aspect of something like healthcare, you know, a third party, whether that's a government, you know, um, handling something, Medicare, Medicaid, or it's a private insurance company, um, there's going to be this feeling of needing to make a profit or to cut costs in some sort of way. And that has developed into, I don't know if I necessarily want to call them perverse incentives for these hospitals, but almost in a way, um, it has driven up costs tremendously. Um, can you sort of speak to that, how the third party system has, has made this a little worse for us? So when we talk about corporate healthcare, to me, corporate healthcare isn't just the typical, um, what we think of as a corporation, like a for-profit business entity. I think that any entity that comes between the patient and the physician um, and has a financial interest in the relationship between a patient and a physician is actually part of this problem of corporate healthcare. So that could include certainly corporations that are, you know, employing the physician, corporations that are insuring the patient, corporations such as the employer of the patient that, you know, is paying for the insurance. Um, it could be the government, which uh, may be the insurer for the patient, maybe the employer of the, the physician. And, and so I, I actually include the government in this definition of corporate healthcare, because they absolutely have a financial interest in this. You know, they have a budget that they have to um, uh, abide by, and they have a uh, a number of set number of uh, people that they have to provide benefits for, and their resource resources are limited by what taxes they collect, <laughs> and so. Um, and so they absolutely have to keep costs down and they have a um, financial interest in this relationship. So we could probably argue, you know, endlessly about which of these entities is worse, but I think they all should be included in that definition of corporate health care. Okay. And obviously I'm on the insurance side and that's how I make a living is selling insurance. And so I, I see the efficacy of having coverage for yourself because you want to, or your loved ones, because you want to avoid that. And so I see in our current healthcare system, the necessity to have insurance. And it's for those large catastrophic bills that otherwise would cause bankruptcy or cause, you know, selling of a house, draining of a retirement fund, a college fund. Um, and that's really what a lot of people have wanted. Um, but a lot of these insurance plans are covering way more than that. Um, they're, they're getting this, this coverage to be a lot broader and we're seeing this drastic increase in premiums because of the scope of what these plans are covering, I feel like. And so you, you had spoken a little bit about, you know, these third parties and they can only in, in the terms of a third party being an insurance company that they can only keep a certain amount of premium dollars that come in. And so that sort of gives them this incentive to, start offering coverage for more things and, and to raise prices. And they, they almost don't mind if the premiums raise in due to the healthcare cost rising. And can you sort of speak about that, how that would work? So 
I think just to talk a little bit about the history of how all of this evolved in the United States, um, health healthcare insurance um, started off as a employee benefit um, back in the 1930s and 40s. I think it, especially in the 1940s, um, there were some government imposed caps on um, salary and companies in order to attract, you know, the best employees offered, hey, well, you know, we will pay for any unexpected hospitalization for you and your family if um, that was to happen. And that's how, you know, how insurance started. So, um, and I believe it was like the Dallas Teachers Association maybe. And then uh, that was the very first company. And then that um, eventually turned into Blue Cross um, and then Blue Shield was added on later, which then paid for some outpatient expenses. Blue Cross was primarily hospital expenses. Um, and then this really spread like, you know, gangbusters in the 1950s as the war ended and we went into this massive, you know, industrial galvanization of the country, all of the uh, soldiers coming back from war and, you know, getting jobs and getting married and having babies. And so we were in this, you know, incredible um, period of history. And then what happened was that there were a lot of patients um, that didn't have those uh, benefits, uh, people that were poor, people that were elderly, they weren't covered for their hospitalizations. So the government um, decided to, to start providing some benefits for uh, people that weren't employed. And that's how Medicare happened. And um, eventually Medicaid also, uh, so Medicare covers the older population, people that have retired, and uh, Medicaid uh is more of a state-based uh, program that covers patients that are uh, disabled and poor. So once the government got into this, um, they eventually grew to be the largest single payer of for medical services. And very often the prices that they determined for you know, a, a visit, a hospitalization, a procedure, those kind of became the gold standard um, by which other private insurers decided their prices. But eventually, as the enrollees increased and increased and uh, tax dollars were strained, the government started um, pulling back on how much they wanted to spend. And very often the, those prices were not enough to sustain physician practices and hospitals. And so private insurers continued to pay more than Medicaid, but they might pay like a multiplier of the Medicaid, Medicare rate. Um, so, you know, they, a private insurer for a hospital stay might pay two times as much as uh, Medicare. But hospitals continue to, to take Medicare um, as part of a service. Um, and also because it was a large patient population, they didn't want to not take them either. So, and then during all of this, there was definitely bad behavior by physicians and hospitals too, though. Um, in the 1970s and 80s, 
when it was essentially fee for service, in other words, you know, you care for a patient, do a procedure, hospitalize them, and uh, you are getting paid by the day, um, there was no need for efficiency in getting the patient better and back home. So uh, hospitals and physicians absolutely were complicit in keeping them in the hospital longer than they really maybe needed to be for a true medical only reason. Maybe, you know, the family wasn't home to take care of um, grandma as she recovered from her pneumonia um, because they were going to be on vacation. So they kept grandma in the hospital for an extra week. And the bill was you know, paid for by Medicare or the insurance companies. So because of that type of bad behavior um, by the uh, provider side, in the 1980s, the insurance industry started creating new uh, ways of cost control, such as HMOs and different ways of managed managing this care so that it wasn't just straight fee for service. We've been very slow to let go of fee-for-service, and you know, and even now we still have, to a large extent, fee-for-service. Things have changed in that you know, right now it may be more like a diagnosis-related code that you know uh, hospitals or physicians are paid for um, as a a broad uh, diagnosis. You know, you have a heart attack and you're going to get paid. to take care of a patient having that type of diagnosis um, rather than having an itemized um, bill for every single thing. So essentially when these patients were coming in and they had insurance or they had the government support, physicians and providers would sort of think, well, maybe this treatment actually takes twice as long as it would otherwise normally because they knew they were going to be getting paid. paid. And so obviously the insurance companies and the government were pushing back because they have a bottom line as well. And then they maybe they started doing this sort of managed care thing like, hey, he had a heart attack. He doesn't need to be here for a month. We're going to cover seven days or, or, or whatever it, it may be. And so they sort of had more say in how the care was being administered. Is that sort of where the managed yes. care came so in? so they started having more limitations on what they would pay for, um, which is understandable. You know, they were, I mean, honestly, in many ways, they were being taken advantage of. But then it started going past the point of still allowing for autonomy by the physician to make medical judgments um, for the patient's best interest. So... Um, oftentimes patients were, uh, getting kicked out of the hospital too soon and things like that. So, and the other, the other thing that happened is as the insurer started pushing back, both the government and private insurers started requiring more paperwork to fulfill all of their regulations, to make sure that all the I's were dotted and the T's were crossed, um, especially with the government. So, you know, to be able to see a Medicare patient and be able to bill for it, the administrative costs for, for being able to participate in that were growing exponentially. And and, and that's that has continued. It, it really increased a lot in the 90s and then in the 2000s. Um, and 
And honestly, that's why a lot of um, now, a lot of practices, private practices, um, especially outpatient practices, have to either limit their number of Medicare, Medicaid patients that they take um, because they pay very poorly in general, and they um, require a lot of administrative burden. But the, the private insurers also did that sort of thing too. So um, now we see no medication that is authorized without prior authorizations. Medications that have been out for decades that are very well known, you know, uh, among physicians, a patient might have been on a medication for two decades and all of a sudden now they, the physician has to fill out a prior authorization to, you know, for their uh, insurance to cover that for a patient. So the addition of all of these types of administrative costs um, has one decreased the number of physicians that are taking some of the lower paying types of insurance and also driven a lot of physicians just out of um, private practice and into employment, employment by hospitals and corporations because they are better financed, I guess, to handle these large administrative uh, burdens, um, which has been bad for physician autonomy. And um, often, I think, again, you know, is decreasing the direct relationship between a physician and a patient. So um, insurance companies now seem to have, you know, the upper hand. So during the ACA, they were asked, they were told that they don't want to see insurance companies having huge profits um, because it was apparent that when patients didn't get care, um, insurance companies would profit because they were able to keep more of the money uh, that was paid as premiums for their for themselves. So it benefited um, insurance companies to not pay for things. So in the ACA, there was something called the medical loss ratio, which basically said that insurers had to use 80 to 85% of their premium dollars collected. So the money that they get from premiums, 80 to 85%. And that whether you were 80 or 85 depended on the size of your insurance company. But that much money had to be used for direct patient care costs. So that money had to be used for paying for medications, for hospitalizations, for services for the patient. And so since the ACA, what we found is that insurers have this perverse incentive for overall health care costs to go up because... If 85% of a $50,000 hospitalization is 7 and 7.5. Uh, 42.5. So they, call, they call me Rain Man. 42,500. 15% of $50,000 hospitalization is 7,500. But if the hospital was to charge 100000 for that same hospital stay, 15% of that is 15000 So the insurer benefits when the prices go up, when the hospital prices go up. In the, in the sense that they can now raise their premiums 
based off, hey, look, this thing that used to cost $50,000 now costs $100,000. I have to charge you more if you want that covered. So instead of charging you $500 a month for your premium, I've got to now charge you $1,000 a month in your premium. Right. And and that's what we found is that um, health insurance premiums have risen very fast since the ACA. This is where we came to with these um, employers in Indiana, these small business owners and stuff, lobbying our legislators for decreasing hospital costs because they know that it's a, it, that will eventually decrease their own premiums. And now is there a way, so obviously the medical loss ratio situation was put in place to affect things positively for the consumer. The idea was, hey, now every dollar you're putting in in premium, you know you're going to get at least 80 cents of care out of that. Mm-hmm. And But it's created this perverse incentive, like you said, where instead hospitals or not hospitals, insurance companies are looking at it the opposite way and saying, you're telling me out of every dollar I get, I can only keep 20 cents. Well, they're going to want to collect as many dollars as possible. And so they don't care if the healthcare costs go up. But what else I've seen is that they're starting to cover even more things in these insurance plans. And so whereas if you just had a catastrophic plan, maybe 20 years ago, that would just be a major medical and cover you for, you know, the big hospital stays or the accidents or the surgeries, maybe it cost a hundred bucks. But now these insurance programs are covering maternity and drug and alcohol abuse and rehab and pre-existing conditions, and they have a max out of pocket and there's no limits. That seems to also increase the premium, which allows them to keep a larger percentage as far as the 20%. Yes, uh, and that is true. So there's different schools of thought on this. I mean, I personally believe that when we think of insurance, insurance is a way to mitigate risk. Um, When I buy car insurance, you know, I'm protecting myself against catastrophic type um, events and expenses. If my car was to be totaled or I was to get in an accident and have to pay for um, somebody else, somebody else's car or medical um, expenses. But my car insurance definitely does not pay for my routine maintenance of my car. They don't pay for my, you know, getting my tires rotated and my oil filter changed. And I mean, and nobody's does, you know, and it's the same way with our homeowners insurance. And um, so it's really there to protect us from catastrophic events and catastrophic expenses. So just the way that we even define healthcare insurance in in, uh, America is very different because, you know, our, um, we, we have all become very used to this paradigm of having a third party paying for what has become, you know, maintenance. Uh, so routine doctor's visits and your mammograms. So your preventative type of care, um, we're just used to having somebody else paying for it. Now, there may be some um, incentive to insurers to do this because if you detect a breast cancer early on, it's going to be a lot less expensive to take care of than if you don't find it until the very, you know, until the last stages of it. So, so they do have some incentive to keep their population healthy. And employers want a healthy 
workforce. So, um, so there is benefit to both of those parties for having, um, you know, uh, providing some maintenance and preventative health type of things. But unfortunately, what's happened is that the risk of not staying healthy has unfortunately, that entire risk has been taken out of the lap of many patients. So patients don't have um, a financial risk of maintaining their health. I mean, other than, you know, continuing to have a job and being able to physically be able to go to work and they're not feeling any financial pinch for not taking care of themselves because they always have the safety net to fall back on as long as they have a job. And if they don't have a job, but they qualify for Medicare, Medicaid, they still have that. So that is part of the problem. So I, I guess what I would say is that if we want to really reduce our insurance premiums, that we need to decrease what all is being paid for by these um, insurance companies. Having a catastrophic health plan, health care coverage, uh, such as for hospitalizations, major surgeries, and then in some way incentivizing people to actually do the things that are necessary to prevent uh, these catastrophes and maintain their own health, maybe such as health savings accounts and other financial incentives for for patients to actually take it onto themselves to stay healthy. That may be definitely a way to decrease our overall costs. Because right now, like our healthcare expenditure in this country is much higher than our defense spending. Mm. <laughs> like, you know, and we know that's um, high. And, and, and that's high, yeah, absolutely. But we, we need to figure out what our priorities are. So much of, the, I feel like, the problems that have happened in this country are because our quote-unquote system, I can't really even say that it's a system, but what we have here has just grown up from that first Dallas Teachers Association, you know, in the 1930s, 40s, and just mushroomed. It's like an unplanned city as opposed to a planned city, which is what a lot of other countries have, where they had a, you know, uh, a definite plan on how they wanted their health insurance to be, whether it's Britain or Canada or Singapore or Germany, or they all had a very planned growth um, of their healthcare system, and they truly have systems in the United States, it's sort of like it grew. We didn't like that part of it. So here's a law to kind of nip that in the bud. Uh, it grew. Oh, we liked this. And, you know, this congressman or the senator wanted that company to to benefit. So, you know, <laughs> laws were changed. Like, I feel like what we have right now is a mixed economy of you know, quasi-capitalist, quasi-socialist in terms of, you know, government-owned stuff as well as government-paid stuff. So this mixed economy in healthcare, and the capitalist side is not even capitalist. It's like this crony capitalism where uh, the government and, and government agencies are picking the winners and the losers. And there are all kinds of perverse incentives like we talked about. And so it's not even true capitalism where we can really use the the concepts of supply and demand and 
um, market price controls because it's not. It's not really that true free market economy, even on the capital capitalist side. Yeah. And I, I see that every day. I'm talking to people and trying to assist them in finding health insurance and they they gasp at the premiums. And it's because of so many of the things that we are talking about. But I don't want to be all chicken little, the sky is falling, because I do think that there are some steps being taken by certain individuals, providers, entrepreneurs who are looking at this and seeing it in a similar light that you see it in and that I see it in. And they're thinking, okay, all right, yes, that that part sucks, that part's okay, but what can we do? What is it that we can do? And we've had um, a couple guests on who are direct primary care providers. Mm -hmm. And that is a model that just, I, I absolutely love it. I, I think it encourages people to be more health conscious. It's more about getting better. It takes away that sort of, well, I've got health insurance. I don't need to take care of myself type of thing. Um, there are these limited benefit health insurance plans that I sell that, you know, allow you up to maximum amount of dollars for these acute incidents like a surgery, like a hospitalization, like a disease. Um, but it doesn't cover the little stuff, you know, it doesn't cover the maintenance stuff. Like it doesn't cover your oil change for your car. Um, and then there are these cost sharing programs and there's these standalone surgical facilities that are really fascinating that are cash pay and there's, you know, outpatient imaging centers. And so I like to see that there are some free market things coming out to sort of combat this and to sort of combat the way things have always been. And I'm using air quotes there. And, you know, people have gotten used to relying on this third party to pay for everything instead of working directly with these providers where you can cut out that middleman and things become a lot more reasonable as far as price and care and your health. And so I, I just, what do you think about all of those things? And do you think that that will be an effective way to sort of mitigate this instead of relying on more legislation? Well, I think the big picture in all of this is that, I mean, I, I also love the concepts of um, direct primary care, direct specialty care, direct surgical care, um, because it does, those do like eliminate all of those entities between the patient and the physician and thus decrease the costs you know, incredibly and increase the autonomy of the patient and the physician. So I, so I love those. And as much as we have been seeing, you know, this, those types of um, practices kind of mushrooming here and there, by and large, they're not enough for, you know, the vastness of our country. Most patients still rely on um, third-party payer insurance. And so although I would love to see us going toward that, um, I think a lot of what prevents people from going into that is that, um, well, well, one, they don't know about it, hmm. but two, they still have to have some other kind of catastrophic insurance. And that itself, even catastrophic insurance is very, very expensive if you can even get it. <laughs> because I believe that there were a lot of restrictions put on these type, those types of catastrophic limited benefit plans by the ACA. And so, so even if you wanted to do that, um, you're very restricted in what you, what you could get. Um, I think that eventually we have to decide as a nation what our plan is going to be. Are we going to have a very free market, true free market, not what we have now, <laughs> 
but a, a true free market healthcare system where uh, patients actually have um, are paying directly for most services um, other than maybe catastrophic? Or are we going to go to more of a socialistic or one uh, single payer um, option where uh, the government is paying for everybody's health care? And even and I think what people need to understand is if we go toward that, we're going to have limited resources to pay for everything. So we may not have the access and the quality that we do now. So there are definitely benefits um, and drawbacks to both. But I think this is something that a conversation that the nation has to have. Unfortunately, I have found that there's really no politicians that want to have the tough decision, <laughs> the hmm. tough conversations with um, the public about this. Um, everybody wants to promise everything. And, you know, like we're going to be in Shangri-La if we have um, single payer system, which I don't think is going to happen. I think if we have a single payer system, our quality and our access to uh, what our access is will actually will decrease. Um, absolutely believe that. And um, but you know you wouldn't know that if you were listening to our you know politicians. On the other hand, the politicians on the other side, you know, that want more of the the free market, they're kind of pushing the free market that, you know, the air quotes free market mm. that we have now. And um, that's not okay either, because there are absolutely people that are um, left out in the cold in that system. And there, like I said, there are winners and losers there. And there are people that, um, you know, the government and agencies and politicians are the king makers and in our current air quotes free market. And so I don't think that's okay either. Hmm. So, you know, we, we need to have as a, as a nation, a very tough conversation about what do we want? Do we want high quality, you know, very broad access or lower costs, or who do we want to uh, take the burden of the costs? Each individual person, or the government. So, I mean, we're, we'll all pay some costs, whether it's as the individual patient or as the taxpayer that pays for everybody else too. So we're, we need to have those conversations. And that's something that hasn't been happening for the last 50 years in this country. Yeah. I mean, you sort of said, as opposed to Germany or Canada or Singapore, mm -hmm. where they had a plan, they were, they're constantly having those conversations mm -hmm. about new things that come up and they seem to be better prepared for things like the lockdown and, and, mm -hmm. and, and whatever, we could talk about that another time. But so there's a couple things that I'm sort of taking away is just stay healthy, take yes. care of yourself Yes, um, because you can be hit with one of these acute massive hospital bills. And if you're not in network or you're out of network or your coverage isn't right, or you could be left holding a sizable bill, bill without knowing without and, and thinking you were covered beforehand. So always double check your policy before anything happens, contact Iconic Insurance. But before we wrap up anything, I, I also want to talk about, you're a physician. Um, I believe you specialize in pediatrics and emergency services. Mm -hmm. And that's amazing. Um, and there are so many people you, I, I may be making an improper assumption, but you probably got into the medical field to help people. 
and maybe it was all idealistic Dr. Hilton before she was a doctor saying, you know, I'm going to change the world. But I've talked to a lot of physicians who are becoming disillusioned when they go to work. And even nurse practitioners are saying, man, it just, I, I can't help these people. And you had mentioned something when we spoke that a lot of that is due to sort of a restriction in how many medical professionals can actually practice medicine as far as, um, I believe you said, there's there's certain laws in place to restrict the amount of um, new med students mm-hmm. um, to become doctors. And it's sort of creating this, our doctors who are there are getting burnt out. They're being disillusioned because they're being told how to practice medicine. They've got stress out their eyeballs and it's becoming not only, you know, a less attractive position, but they're also limiting the number of people who truly just want to help people. And what, can you speak to that a little bit? Ooh, that's a very big topic, (laughs) but, um, yes. So again, because the way healthcare services are paid for in this country, including, um, medical education. So, um, you know, it's very difficult to get into medical school. And I would say when I was applying and even now the medical, the young pre-med students that I meet now, we are a very idealistic bunch or we started off as a very idealistic bunch wanting to help people. And, uh, yeah, I mean, definitely, you know, there's a, a good living to be made in medicine also, but there are a lot of other ways of making money if that was somebody's primary concern. Um, so I don't think that people go into medicine primarily for making money. It, it's an extremely difficult road to walk. Um, but yes, because of um, the way our medical education is paid for, you know, after doing an undergraduate degree, usually four years, and then four years of medical school, um, to be a full, full-fledged, board-certified physician in a, any type of specialty. And this includes primary care specialties like family medicine, pediatrics, internal medicine. So you have to do a residency. Residency is a minimum of three years. Some of them are longer. I'm double boarded in pediatrics and emergency medicine. So my residency was five years. Um, General surgery, for example, is five years. And then if you want to subspecialize, there's something called a fellowship, which may be another one to three years after residency. So in other words, this is a process that is taking a dozen years <laughs> to get through. And during all of this time, you know, you're busy studying. You don't have time to work. So you're and you're paying these huge, you know, bills for graduate education. So you're accumulating student debt um, currently. Medical students are graduating with an average of about $250,000 of debt, so a quarter of a million dollars of debt. Medicare, CMS, um, funds the vast majority of residency programs in the country. And in the 1990s, I think it was the Balanced Budget Act of 1997, they capped the number of residency positions that they would pay for. And so at that point, there, that, was, that became a bottleneck. So in other words, every year recently, there have been 2,000 medical school graduates that you know finished medical school, 
have an MD behind their name now, but there are less residency positions than there are these graduates. So every year, there's of recent years, 2,000 or per year medical students that are going unmatched. What a waste of resources. <laughs> you know, what a waste of human resources. Um, and, you know, these may be students that were actually great students, but the way that that we um, decide who gets residencies is very complex. And they may have absolutely nothing wrong with them, have done nothing wrong, have been excellent students. And for no fault of their own, they don't have a residency and therefore we'll never be able to practice medicine. Um, I think we need to address this issue, you know, it's a huge issue. So then on the other side, for the ones that do become physicians and go through residency and start practicing, they're overburdened by lack of support. So one, you know, we don't have enough physicians, so everybody's patient panels are busting at the seams um, because, like I mentioned before, the amount of regulations and administrative burden have increased steadily. Fewer and fewer physicians have the option of being in private practice and owning their own practice and having the autonomy to make their own decisions about their schedules and how many, how much time they can spend with patients and how they can practice, really. And um, and so more of them are becoming employed, which employed by large health systems. So even though they have this, you know, MD or DO behind their name and their doctor and, you know, everything is supposed to revolve around them because they are like the, you know, <laughs> the crux of what patients go to seek is yeah, medical opinions with them. But yet they become a kind of a widget in, you know, in this huge industrial illness complex that we call our healthcare system. And ha they have very little say in how much time they can spend with patients, um, in how many patients, you know, they have to see in a day, what their schedule is like, who they're going to work with. You know, they may not have any say in hiring and firing of other staff members, um, even though they are being called on to be the leaders of the team, they may not have any um, actual say in who is on that team, which can affect, you know, patients, uh, the, the quality of care that's received by patients. So because of all of those sort of things, la decreasing autonomy, overburdening with amount of patients and pay, uh, physicians are getting burned out. Um, and I would say for myself, I, wa I was absolutely burned out. The number one thing that burned me out was um, the electronic health record. So, you know, as an emergency physician, um, we have to do a very focused physical exam and interview with the patient to get to the, you know, the crux of why they're in the emergency department. Um, but what I was finding is that I would have to spend twice as long actually dictating the encounter <laughs> than what I was able to spend with the patient. And, you know, we had this EHR, electronic health record, that was really built to bill maximally, not to increase my efficiency as a physician. Um, and so, you know, when we had paper charts, yes, they were difficult to read, but you could you could get through a paper chart 
much quicker than having to log into this computer system and dictate and putting in all this information that's required by the by the the program in order to be able to complete the note but that really serves no clinical purpose at all you know that is is there so that they can bill at a higher level so i was finding that you know after a 12 hour shift in the emergency department which was very very busy uh, because we were constantly understaffed you know like we were staffed at the bare minimum and so there wasn't a lot of time to um, finish dictations while I was there in real time and so for every 12-hour shift I might have two to four hours of uh, dictations to do after each shift and you know I have a husband, I have children, I have a life outside of work. And so even though I loved seeing patients and never got burned out on actual patient care, I was absolutely burned out on these sort of administrative tasks that were being asked of me. So I would say that was, you know, very, very, um, it, those really burned me out. But there's something else. There's a new concept that has been spoken about a lot in physician circles called moral injury. And so a lot of the times when pay, if physicians or lay people say, oh, that doctor is burned out, actually, it's not so much burnout as moral injury. So in my example of the EHR, um, the difference is moral injury, the moral injury that I suffered was that I knew that I needed to spend 20 minutes with a patient to be able to connect with them, to get the real story of why they're in the emergency department and to examine them and, you know, to really help them. But we are so understaffed that I could only be in there for five minutes and not really do what I, what I know to do, what I'm capable of doing, what the whole system is capable of doing, but because of circumstances beyond my control, I'm not able to provide the help that I can. That is actually what's called moral injury. And I did feel like I was absolutely suffering that, that I wasn't able to provide the level of quality of care that, um, that I was capable of because of circumstances like staffing and um, things like that, that were beyond my, my control. So. Wow. Well, that's coming straight from a certified doctor who did get into medical school. She did get approved. She got a residency um, and, you know, suffering this moral injury, but on the bright side, you have become um, a founder a founding member of what, it, what are you working on now? So um, a group of us um, of uh, mostly physicians, but there are others uh, that are not physicians in our group, started a nonprofit recently called Hoosier Alliance for Safe Healthcare, or HASH for short. So we believe that where corporate healthcare intersects with patient safety is where we want to advocate. In other words, we feel that there are circumstances created by misalignment of uh, financial motivations from um, corporations uh, that do not benefit patients. So for some, for example, some of the things that we advocate for are adequate 
staffing ratios rather than having one nurse like on a regular general medical floor covering six patients which would maybe be appropriate in a place in, in a floor like that nowadays hospitals are having one nurse cover 10 or 12 patients and that's dangerous for the patients you know they call their call light because they need help to go to the bathroom or they're having pain or a suture popped loose or something is happening and they're calling the call light and there's one nurse you know covering 10 or 12 patients that is unsafe but that's happening and that was happening before covid so I, I don't want anyone to think that this is all because of COVID, because it's not. These were things that were happening well before COVID. And those types of unsafe staffing ratios among bedside nurses was probably the number one thing that was burning out bedside nurses. So then when the when the pandemic did happen, they were that much closer to just saying, well, forget this. I'm, I don't need this. I don't need to be putting myself in physical danger every day when, um, you know, they, the hospital, the healthcare system clearly doesn't care for my own, my own well-being. So they were that much closer to, to leaving in the first, you know, even before the pandemic. But that's all, that's all dangerous for for patient safety. Other things that we advocate for are appropriate roles in the healthcare system based on education and training um, rather than just on decisions that are being made by regulators and legislators. Um, for example, physicians are the only profession that is licensed uh, in the unrestricted practice of medicine. Uh, and to me, medicine is the evaluation and diagnosis and treatment of human illness or injury. However, what we've been finding is that um, other professions, such as nurse practitioners, physician assistants, are really starting to be used by corporations to do those same roles, not because they've been proven to be safe or proven to be effective in doing them, but because they can be done cheaper. <laughs> they can be done uh, with less cost to the health system itself. And, you know, our organization is not anti-NP or anti-PA, but we do think we think that they, you know, are important um, members of the healthcare system and have a lot of value to to offer patients. But their training, their licensure, is not the independent practice of medicine, and um, they are really being used by corporations um, for that, which is not safe for patients. I think it's, I don't think that in itself is really great, but the fact that the Hoosier Alliance for Safe Healthcare exists, that you've been a part of founding that, that's one of those, you know, bright lights of hope um, in this otherwise dreary situation that we're in, because I, I do want it to be hopeful. And I, I think that there are some of our best and most passionate people are working on this. They, they identify it as an issue, our healthcare system, and they're trying to advocate or they're trying to pivot and come up with new ways of doing the same old thing. 
because it's of my personal opinion that if we continue to rely on legislators, hospital corporations, and health insurance companies to fix the problem they already created, we're going to exacerbate it, in my opinion. And and I'd love to be proven wrong. Please, please <laughs> prove me wrong. I will eat crow and I, I will be dancing in the street. But I think it would be great to have you back on once we see these new changes that are supposed to be coming about. I say changes a little <laughs> in air quotes, but April 2022 was mm-hmm. when they were supposed to announce their cost cutting. Yeah. And so I, I'll, we'll get some data back from that. We'll see, we'll see some results, good, bad, or otherwise, yeah. um, from whatever they decide to do. And to have you come back on and just sort of dive into that would be great. What can, what can individuals do? Is, is there any help that just a regular Joe like me could do for the Hoosier Alliance for Safe Healthcare? So uh, we have um, a Facebook page. Okay. If you just search for uh, Hoosier Alliance for Safe Healthcare, um, if you follow or like our page, you'll see uh, articles and things like that that we, we post, you know, fairly regularly. Um, and then as legislation comes up, we, we post um, links to contact your legislator, things like that. So um, liking that page, we're working on a website. So once we have that up and running, we'll post links to the website on the Facebook page also. And you can uh, reach us at our email address, which is info at HoosierAllianceForSafeHealthCare.com. Okay. That is fantastic. And this has been another episode of How in the Health Insurance um, with Dr. Mercy Hilton. Thank you so much for being on. Um, This went way better than I had expected, (laughs) and I expected it to be fantastic. So thank you for listening. Um, Please let us know any sort of feedback if you have any follow-up questions for Dr. Hilton or myself. Uh, Once again, I am Matt Allen, the founder of Iconic Insurance. Um, We help individuals small business owners, families navigate this confusing healthcare system and also this confusing health insurance system. Um, And we make sure that you have the right coverage for your specific situation. You can always find more at iconic-insurance.com. Have a great day.